Now we're going to be closing our thoughts on heaven this morning. We've been looking at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, and uh, we have for the past oh several several weeks now looked at these pictures of heaven that we get at the end of of each letter, these glimpses of what the future holds for those who are in Christ. And we've said already before that what we think about heaven, what we think heaven is like, shapes us and changes us. It, 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 will, it will form who we are and how we live and our priorities on this side of heaven, because that's the goal. Because that is the end point, and everything is driving towards what this heaven will be like. And if your view of heaven is non-existent, then your view of this life increases. And you'll do all manner of things to get as much as you can out of this life. But if your view of heaven increases, you start to see that the things of this life were just preparations, just practice for the life to come. Now, one of the problems is, is that when we say heaven as a, as a euphemism for what happens after this life... It's a little bit of a misnomer. It's, it's not necessarily uh, in our minds the right picture because we have so many images of heaven that's informed by TV shows and, and books. We think of chubby angel babies. We think of harps and halos. Uh, and unfortunately, I think so much of the problem with why heaven does not seem appealing to most people is because we don't actually preach and proclaim a biblical view of heaven. That some of us, if, if we were to be asked, what is heaven like, we, we wouldn't know what to say. Oh, there's no crying, there's no tears, our, our loved ones are there. Uh, and, and yet there's so much more richness and fullness to what heaven is. Even the term heaven in, in the Hebrew, it simply meant the, the firmament above. That is, it included the galaxies and the stars and the skies, that that was the heavens as well. So when we talk about, when we read a moment ago, Revelation 21, about a new heavens and new earth, that is speaking of a whole new creation. Like there, all there is is, so to speak, the earth, right? And everything beyond the earth, which is the, now we know, billions and trillions of stars and galaxies and nebula and and all those wonderful things. So when we talk about a new heavens and new earth, we're not just talking about we're floating around on clouds and babies. We're talking about a whole new world, a whole new universe, a whole new creation. On the one hand, continuous with this. It's not like it's a totally different kind of existence. But like we will have glorified bodies, the earth and the heavens itself will be renewed and refashioned into a perfect gloriousness. We want to have the right view of heaven this morning, one that actually entices us to think beyond this life. And today, in this last message on overcoming, the focus is on the permanence of a new identity in heaven. The permanence of a new identity in heaven. Now, at my age right now, uh, I'm about due for a midlife crisis. If I haven't had one already, I think I might have had a couple. It's like when people have heart attacks and they don't realize they had one. I think I've already had a couple midlife crises. I just didn't know. Maybe COVID distracted me. But I can point to a lot of periods in my life 
actually, where I've had an identity crisis. I remember in junior high school, uh, I really felt the hypocrisy of being a good church kid on Sundays and being a lying, swearing punk during the week at school or pretending to be an obedient son to my parents. And it's funny because my dad is here this morning. <laughs> I forgot I invited him yesterday. <laughs> so when you showed up, <laughs> I almost, I, I, yeah, I almost forgot. Um, but, you know, you probably know, Dad. I was, you know, I, I was fairly obedient, but that was kind of a show at home. I was really just trying to figure out who I wanted to be, what friends I wanted to hang out with. And I think I spent a lot of my young life trying to be like other people that I admired. So if I thought this person was cool or this person was talented, I would kind of do what they did, look, what, look like what they looked like, say what they said. Um, and it's funny because just about the time I started being comfortable with who I was, uh, becoming a young adult, I joined the army. And then I felt like there I was a completely different person almost the whole time I was in the army. Or maybe I just wasn't the person I thought I was. Now, I thought I was going to go into ministry and missions work and enter the pastorate before I joined the army. Uh, but coming out of the army, I wasn't very sure about that, to be honest with you. So I was wrestling with who, who I wanted to be in terms of career. Um, at the same time, <laughs> I was giving a lot of grief. Okay, Catherine's not here, but I was giving endless grief to this woman named Catherine uh, at around the same time. And I was trying to figure out, well, what kind of person would I be if I was also a husband? And, and had that as a part of my identity. Am I ready for that? Uh, by the time I figured out that I wanted to pursue ministry, I was suddenly a pastor here. That was 16 years ago this year. Um, and not too long after that, after a lot of drama and patience with Catherine, I did become a husband. But I'll tell you, every step of the way, on the one hand, it, it felt like the next step to take. It just felt like, well, this is where the Lord's leading. I take that step. But any time I stop to think about this, and I still do this, I think, how did I end up here? I can't believe where I am in life or, or what I've become or who I've become. I don't mean that necessarily in a, in a bad way, but just in a, I, I, I feel like it wasn't that long ago when I was still just trying to figure out who I was in junior high school. Now, parenthood, <laughs> don't get me started with that, it just... I mean, it just rocked me to my core. I mean, it's surreal to think that I have four children. I, I, to think that I, I've brought life into the world. I, I don't know how that's not, how is anyone okay with that? How is anyone okay with that? You brought children that did not exist, conscious beings that did not exist into the world. How does that not shake you to the core, make you question who you are? And what that means about your existence, your understanding of yourself. And now, four kids later, 16 years of ministry, 13 years of marriage. Some of the folks here I've known for 20, 30 years. <laughs> I'm in the second half of my life. My dad just called someone who's 60 years old a young man because he's almost 80. And that's half of my, my age. I'm thinking about legacy, what I leave behind. But I still look in the mirror <laughs> and think, who am I? How did I, how did I get here? 
what, what am I really at the core of it? Now, I know that's a really personal introduction. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of you, some older, some younger, and I know some of you are just firm in your identity, just unquestioningly, unflinchingly sure in who you are and who God made you to be, and God bless you. <laughs> but I know some of you also are still wondering who you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. Some are disappointed in the person you've become and wonder if that will ever change. Some of you find out after years and years you're not the person that you thought you were. Part of the appeal of heaven is a sureness about our ultimate identity. And, and heaven has to intersect with our life now, as I've been saying, as we've been talking about over and over again. Meaning, our ultimate identity, which is fulfilled in heaven, again, not just clouds and angels and halos, but a new heavens, a new earth, a glorified, perfect place in which we will also dwell in a glorified, perfect way, our life now is intended to be lived in the shadow of those glorious heavenly realities, or really not the shadow, but the light of those glorious heavenly realities. And when it comes to our life right now, we need to understand if we're talking about the permanence of our identity in heaven, we need to understand that we will never be who we truly are meant to be without being in Christ. Because he made it all. This is all his plan. So this one today is for really all of you who might be struggling with the idea of not knowing who you are. For you young people still trying to scratch that out, I don't mean to discourage you, but you could go another 10, 20, 30 years and not figure that out. Maybe never. Figure that out on this side of heaven. But if you are a Christian, there is an assurance that one day you will be exactly who you were meant to be, and it will be because of Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we look at the promise in Revelation to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus writes, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first picture of permanence in our identity that we see in this letter to the church in Philadelphia is that of a pillar. Now, a pillar, you're probably familiar with what a pillar is, a tall vertical structure, either for decoration or for bearing weight in, in, a, in a structure. Now, in the Roman city of Philadelphia, like many Roman cities, they had lots of temples, they had a lot of beautiful buildings, and you'd often see these pillars, Philadelphia also happened to be very prone to earthquakes. And sometimes, you know the only thing that would be left standing after an earthquake? It might seem counterintuitive. But these tall pillars would be the only thing that would remain of all these beautiful structures. Even now, 
some of the most distinctive features of ancient temples that have stood for 2,000 years, like the Parthenon, what's the most significant feature? You see these pillars, these columns. What does the temple of God represent? We're going to be a pillar in the temple of God. Well, the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it represented the place that God chose to dwell amongst the Israelites. It wasn't where he actually lived. It's not like, and and Solomon, we won't do this for sake of time, but in 1 Kings 8, 27, 1 Kings 8, 27, Solomon is dedicating the building and he says, how could anyone, how could you dwell in this temple when the heavens and the earth cannot contain you? So Solomon understood that when God was saying, I will meet with you in this temple, it's God choosing to dwell amongst men in a specific space and way, even though he doesn't have to do that, even though it would mean God having to condescend himself in order to meet with a priest inside the temple. Now, when we talk here about this pillar of the temple of my God, this isn't referencing that we are literally going to be pillars in a building, that for eternity we're going to be holding up some structure. No. Instead, it means that instead of looking at it, looking at our relationship with God through the perspective of God dwelling in this little plot of land in the middle of this extravagant temple, we need to think of the new heavens and the new earth as the place where we will permanently dwell, permanently take place, take our place with God. We aren't the ones accommodating God's presence with us. Here's a temple, God, you please, can you live here with us? No, he is the one making a place for us in his dwelling place. And like a pillar is fixed, immovable, this is something that we will never lose our placement. It's permanent. Jesus says, never shall he go out of it. Now, the pillars of a temple could be made of really precious marble or stone. Um, In the case of Solomon's temple, when he built the temple, he erected these two huge pillars that were covered in bronze. Now, what would happen is that if you lost a war or if you were conquered, as the uh, Israelites were by the Babylonians, these temples would be looted. Or an enemy would come and destroy it. And this is what happened to two temples of Israel, that they were destroyed in this way. So a, a pillar, while they could stand the test of thousands of years, they were not permanent still. Actually, in the Parthenon, um, there's, it's gone through a lot of wars. So you know, if, you, if you've been there, there's sections of the pillars blown out, and um, they stored ammunition there um, in one war, uh, which was not a good idea. Um, and a pillar is not permanent on this side of heaven. But Jesus is saying, again, you're not a literal pillar in a literal temple. You are a person that will dwell with God, and you shall never be asked to leave. The way Adam and Eve, as the kids were pointing out, were prohibited from entering the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, that will never happen again. We will never be shooed away. We will never be turned away. Our place is going to be secure there. And this is a a comfort to the Philadelphians. If you remember, they were a church that had little power. They're barely hanging on. 
those persecutions and the trials of just being a Christian in a sin-cursed world had brought them to their knees. They were wobbly. They felt like the slightest breeze might blow them over. But God is saying, if you will overcome, even if you are crawling on your knees to get through the door to heaven, so to speak, once you come into my presence, I will fix you. I will establish you. You will never be moved. You will never be shaken by the things of life ever again. Now, we're about to see, and you heard it already, the temple of my God. You're going to see my God, my God, my God occur three more times in the rest of just this verse here. This is used. Why does Jesus say my God? Right? He's God. So why does Jesus say, my God? Well, we hear him use this language all the time in the Gospels. Remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he always referred to the Father as a separate identity from him. But he was also very clear when he said in John 10.30 that I and the Father are one. In other words, this is not something that contradicts oh, a Trinitarian belief of of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. Rather, this points out the intimate relationship between Jesus and the Father. And more importantly, because Jesus and the Father are one, what is Jesus doing in his ministry? John 17, 11. You don't have to turn there, but jot it, jot it down. John 17, 11, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. They may be one, even as we are one. We're about to see in this idea of a name that the relationship between Jesus and God the Father are so close, so intimate, that they share the same name. And then Jesus is praying, bring these people into this relationship of oneness and unity. And it's gonna be symbolized in giving, give them the same name. The name which you've given me, give to them. So the sharing of a name, the sharing of an identity, the permanence that we're talking about is a permanence of relationship in heaven a permanence, permanence of our identity, who we truly are. You have three names here, right? You have, uh, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. Now, we've talked about names before in the letters to the other churches. A, a name is a representation of someone's character, their, their reputation, their works, their accomplishments. It's not just what you call someone to get their attention. So here, these three names, it's not like, you know, Yuri Da Kuang, right? It's not that kind of idea. I don't know that this is to be taken strictly literally, that we will all have the same middle name, Jerusalem. It's not like that. This is a statement of identity. Like Jesus' name is different than the Father's name, so to speak, like in a literal sense. But they had the same identity, the same name. And the context, in the context here of the life after this life, 
which again, you think of heaven as just a place where these you know, souls kind of hovering around forever in this nebulous you know, ether. Like, that's not it. That's not heaven. Heaven is a, a place where there'll be real things, real food, real animals, real trees, a real earth, real stars, real sky, where we will dwell with real bodies, the fulfillment of all the weakness that we see in this life. In that place, we will have a permanent change of identity. The name of my God. What does this refer to? This is our identification as belonging to God. You contrast that in the book of Revelation with those who take a mark of the beast, which identifies people as belonging to the Antichrist and to Satan. This use of the name is is sort of like when a woman takes the last name of her husband. The person stays the same. Right? It's not like there's any biological or chemical change, no mental change. But the name change signifies unifying an identity with another person. Right? It's saying that this is now my house. That this uh, pe- people is now, I am one with this other person. It, it, it defines a relationship change, even if it doesn't change who you are as a person. And so these names are about new permanent associations that are created in heaven. And the most important one is belonging to God, God's own, God's chosen. The second name, the name of the city of my God. This is a little bit more weird because I think we can understand like changing your last name or something like that. Uh, Revelation 21.9, what does this mean that we will have the name of a city, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Go to Revelation 21, verse 9. This is close to the end of all things. And we have this vision that John sees. We've already been introduced to the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride. We saw that in Revelation 21 too, when, when being read that. But now look at this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Goes on to describe even the measurements of this vision of a city that's coming down out of heaven. But this is weird imagery, right? This is weird imagery because this city is like a bride. This bride is also the church. It's it's us. So the problem is you have a, a mixed imagery, right? They, they teach you not to do this in literature classes. If you mix too many pictures, you get kind of confused. So am I a lamb uh, or am I a bride of a lamb or am I a city, <laughs> right? It's a little bit confusing, but you just have to sort of get the overall picture of it. What does the city represent, this new Jerusalem? Well, again, it's not going to be our middle name. It's not 
you know, Yahweh, Jerusalem, and then mysterious name that Jesus gives us. That's, that's not what it's about, our designation per se. It, it means that we will be defined as the people of this new city. We, taught, we read, actually Ron Hebert read earlier in Hebrews 11, that all of these ones who died in faith, what were they looking for? A city whose foundation was made without hands. In other words, the picture of faithful people all throughout the Bible is that they're looking for the place where they belong. And it's not in any city here on earth. Maybe you like Orange County. Maybe you like Houston. Maybe you like New York. You really enjoy the the vibe, the weather, whatever it is. But there's no place on earth where you truly, truly belong. Only in the place where God says he will dwell. That's where you belong. And this new Jerusalem, this new city, it represents that. We won't get into all the the details about it, but you could simply say this. This is referring to our citizenship. The way you might identify as an American or or whatever uh, citizen of whatever nation, this is sort of a way of saying your passport now will say resident of the new Jerusalem. This is where you belong. This is where you are from. This is where you've been sojourning from and now must return to if you are a Christian. And it's a beautiful city. The imagery won't get too much into it. But to say it's adorned as a, as a bride is just to conjure up that this is not like a slum city. You know, this is not a city that, that, where they don't pick up the trash, um, you know, where there's, you know, drugs and, and all kinds of things. I, I mean, it, it's a beautiful, spotless city in which there is no ugly thing, which there is nothing that is not perfect and pure. You can only imagine such, such a city. Maybe you think Irvine comes pretty close, but there are places in Irvine that you probably wouldn't want to hang out in either. Not so in the new Jerusalem. And really that's saying that we will be a people that is pure and spotless without any blemish. We will be the beautiful ones who have made, been made beautiful by God. Now, is there going to be a literal city? There's dimensions that are laid out. It's a gigantic, huge, unbelievably not conforming to any engineering specs that any person has ever made on the face of the planet. I don't know. It's a vision that John is seeing. Uh, it's hard to um, make it too not literal because there's like literal measurements going on. But I, I will... I'll, I won't make a dogmatic opinion because, in a way, the nature of that city is tied in with our own identity. So, all that to say, when Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia, this is saying, God, we are going to be the place that God dwells. God will dwell in this city. What does that mean? If we are the city... God will dwell in us. And we already see that on this side of heaven too, that by the Holy Spirit, God does dwell within us. But we still wrestle with him. In our, our, we, in our memory pastor, talking about those who live according to the flesh and according to the spirit, we still wrestle sometimes with that flesh. It's not a perfect dwelling that God makes in us, but in heaven, 
God will perfectly dwell in each believer, even as we will literally dwell in a new heavens and a new earth. That is the dual promise. Our citizenship will be there because God himself will be living in us. Now, if you notice in Revelation 21, 22, if you're still there, there is no temple in this new heavens and new earth, which is another clue that we're not talking about literal pillars in a temple in heaven, that we're going to be a literal pillar. It's, again, just that imagery of God dwelling with us, really us dwelling with God permanently, forever. An existence in which we will be established by him and our identity will be fulfilled in him. Lastly, Revelation talks about, and, or I'm sorry, the church uh, in Philadelphia hears this promise that Jesus will give them um, his own new name. Now, that is not to say that necessarily that Jesus gets his own new name and he's going to give us that one, but we already talked about in Revelation 2.17 that uh, Jesus is going to give a new name written on uh, a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And we talked about then, uh, that then, but the point of it is that we will be given by Jesus himself, maybe literally a new name. Maybe you won't call me Yuri, I don't know. But we will, more importantly, be given our new, true identity. The one that is without sin, the one that is without vice, the one that is without weakness, the one that isn't struggling with acceptance or wrestling with confusion, but instead will be found in Christ and because of Christ be who I and you were truly meant to be. There is only one temple of God, one community of God, one people of God, only one God. Now, I know some of you today have had your identity shaped by the places that you moved to. Yeah, you had a parent in the military or they just moved a lot for work and so you know, Catherine, born in Minnesota, ended up in, uh, I think, North Carolina, and then in the Northwest, and then down here, and each of those left an impact on her. I grew up in Orange County, have been here almost my entire life, and those things tend to shape us. I think of, you know, my parents, again, immigrants to this country. They were defined for most of their life by living in a whole different society, and then coming here, and so they've got sort of a hybrid, you know, identity, you know, some perhaps even feeling a little lost because, you know, you're not completely American or completely Korean or whatever the background is. It's hard not to be impacted by your environment and the community that you grew up in. It's already hard enough to find identity. I had a very stable upbringing, and yet Still, to this day, who am I really? So I know some of you have gone through even more things in your life, whether because of moving, whether because of the, the trials that you've gone into, and it's hard. That's exactly what's going on in the culture right now is people are trying to identify themselves by what? By race, by gender, by uh, what, what you know, oppression that they faced who oppressed them, things that happened to their ancestors generations ago. People are defining themselves in so many different ways, and you just see chaos 
Because people are trying to use all of these things as the focal point of their identity. And I understand that. I'm very sympathetic to that. Again, I, I don't know how anyone figures out who they are and what they really are, what, what they really want, what they're really going to be about. But the Bible is saying, no matter where you are placed in this life, whether you know, Korean, American, Midwestern, Southern girl, German, Egyptian, wherever you came up from and, and things that define your experience. Ultimately, our permanent identity is never going to be found in all of those self-identifying labels we make for ourselves. We were made by God for a relationship with him. That is what defines our identity. How could it not? It's the most basic question. Who are we? What were we made for? Who made us? If God doesn't get to define that, then there's no meaning and no purpose to any of this because everyone can just say whatever they want. And you see the results of that. No, our permanent identity is found in the one who made us, and it will be fixed. Our hope is in heaven. As much confusion as we have right now about who we are, what we want to be, all of those questions, heaven is that wonderful comfort and promise and hope. All those will be answered. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone gets through this life. I don't know how you guys make it. I don't know if you guys are telling yourself lies. I don't know if you guys are really Christian and you're, you're praying and you're in the word all the time. I don't know if you're just, you know, getting high or, or drunk. I don't know if you're playing video games to death. I don't know if you just indulge a hobby, you play golf, whatever it is. I don't know how you guys are getting through life. But I'll speak for myself. When I, when I sit there and I'm just lying in bed at night, I'm like, boy, what is this? Who, what am I doing who am I? How, how can I, how am I supposed to pretend to be like one flesh with another human being that, that I don't always understand? How can I be like the father responsible for four human beings? Like, how is that not absolutely terrifying and overwhelming? All I can think is, God, this is better, this is about, this isn't about, this is about you. This is about who I am to you what you've done for me. If I try to solve these problems with saying, well, you know, I'm a Korean American, so how do Koreans solve this? How do Americans solve this? How do, how do you know, pick your self-identifying label, solve this? We'll be lost forever. But if we say, Lord, you are my identity. I need heaven to intersect earth right now. Show me what a citizen of the new Jerusalem does. Show me how one whose identity has been consumed by Christ, what does he do? What does he say? How does he live? How does he, how does he get by? Read the scripture. A lot of grace, good. Need that. A lot of forgiveness, good. I need that. Who do you see in the mirror? Is it shaped by Christ? Is your hope that in heaven, no matter how confusing it is on this side of heaven, I'm, I mean, this is so relevant today because there's a lot of young people looking in the mirror. They don't know who they are. 
male, female, this kind of sexuality, that kind of sexuality, this kind of class, this kind of you know, race, all these questions about identity. I, I don't, those are important questions. Yes, the church should have a thought on that for sure. But our ultimate goal is not to get them, you know what, you're a guy, you're a girl, you're, you're not a, you know, you're not oppressed, you're not, you know, being racist against or whatever. I mean, that's all such a distraction. <laughs> the Bible is saying is our identity needs to be in Christ. That's got to supersede everything. The last picture before I get away from myself here. In Laodicea, very simple. We're going to close on this, it'll be fast. The one who conquers, Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You don't need a theological degree to understand this imagery. You don't necessarily need to go through the whole Bible and look up, do a word study on throne. Now you can Go ahead. If you've got the time to do a word study on throne throughout the whole Old and New Testament, um, you can write a dissertation and, and uh, I'll read it. But the language is so easy to grasp. God, <laughs> maybe it's not <laughs> because we don't have a king or kingdoms and thrones here in America. But uh, you've seen it in cartoons. You've seen it in Disney shows. You know, who sits in the throne? The king. <laughs> The ruler, the one who has the power and the authority and the might. You don't often see a throne that can accommodate two people in it. <laughs> Usually, one person, one throne. It, it, it should come to us naturally. Who gets to sit on the throne of the universe over it all? Duh, God. You know, any of the kids would easily, quickly say that. So the most shocking thing is not about the picture that God is the authority over all things. I mean, there's a Trinitarian thing also happening where God the Father, who's transcendent, he is spirit. He doesn't sit anywhere, not literally, because he is God. He doesn't have a body, but Jesus does. And so there is a throne in which Jesus the Son will sit. I think it's going to be literal and metaphorical, a literal throne, but also over all of the heavens, all of the earth, over all creation. But the most important thing about it is that we get to sit with him on that throne. Now, I don't know how literal this is, because if we're all sitting next to Jesus on his throne, how wide is this throne? <laughs> You know, there's a billion people all sitting on this throne. Well, the guy at the very end is not sitting next to Jesus, is he? He's way down there. He's like three miles away, right? How big is this throne? No, I mean, it, it is it's funny imagery. You're not supposed to press it like that. You're supposed to just marvel at the fact that if there's any throne that should be sat upon by only one, it is the throne of heaven and earth in which the true God and God alone can sit. And he says to people like you and me, <laughs> sinners, desperate, I don't know who I am, look in the mirror, who, you know, how did I get here? I feel so overwhelmed. And he says, you sit here with me. And he shares his throne with you and me. The eternal God 
of heaven, who conquered sin and death, who alone has glory and power, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone should rule and reign. He says, as a part of your identity, sit here next to me. Now, how does that work out in heaven? Literal, all the, that's not, again, that's not the point, to try and tease out all of these you know, literal uh, imageries. The point is for each one of us to be humbled at the thought that my identity includes reigning and ruling with Jesus, who shares his throne with someone like me. And the only reason I can share it is because he died and rose again for my sins. This is what eternity is about. This is what life and creation from beginning to end is about. His glory shared with us. It's something you would dare not even propose. You know, when God is forming all these things before the foundation of the earth, planning out all of these things, who would dare to say in that room, what angel would dare to say, you know, God, what you should do is share the throne of your eternal glory and power with sinners. Who dared to suggest such a thing? No, only God himself. This is how we know this God of the Bible must be true because he's the only God of all the other gods out there that is truly God, absolute authority and sovereign and power. And he looks at the lowest, the humblest, and says, come, sit next to me. That's the reality we need to be true. That's the reality that only the gospel and this Bible, this revelation of God brings. If it's not about that, if heaven isn't about that, then what is it about? You have to come up with something better than that. Well, try as you might. I don't think you'll come any better because you would not dare to suggest anything as ridiculous and preposterous and the eternal transcendent God coming to us, dwelling among us, giving us a new identity that cannot be taken away. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you got to take a look in the mirror and you got to be able to say, well, what is this all about? And if you can't be sure about it, then you have nothing, <laughs> nothing to stand on. Shifting sand. How can you have a family and raise children not knowing what this is all about? How can you take one more step in your life? I'd urge you to consider these things. Wonder whether you will be able to have the humility to say, I need a Savior for my sins. I need this God. I want this God to be a part of my life. And you can by putting faith in that one who sits on the throne. He's worthy of that throne because he died on a cross for our sins. If you are a Christian this morning, you know, I, I'm, I'm giving a little bit of a, you know, help me out here, I guess. I mean, I, I, we need to help each other. We need to help each other fix our eyes on this view of heaven. I, I've talked to too many of you not 
to know that you're all messed up. We're all messed up in here. No one is not messed up. If you're not messed up, I really, truly, I, you think I'm joking? I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. You tell me that you're not messed up. I need your help. No joke. There's people here that need your help. If you're doing okay and you've got a pretty good bead on this identity in Christ and fixing your eyes on heaven, please tell me. I mean, don't even, like, don't even feel like you're being proud or arrogant. There's people here that are very hurting that need you. <laughs> if you find yourself maybe a little bit like me, just wondering, I don't, I don't even know who I am anymore. I'm in, a, I'm in a marriage that I don't even know if I'm doing the right thing or I've lost myself. I, I've heard this so many times. People here, people here, you know, in marriage, I, don't, I, I feel like I've lost my identity, who I am. You know, some of it's the chaos of, of kids. It just makes you forget who you are. All those things. You're out there. Stop pretending like you're not out there. <laughs> we need to know that. You come to the pastors and you, you tell us, and we're going to try to find those people that are okay <laughs> and try to, to connect you. But I know this is going to be a thing for me probably the next uh, few months or something, is we need to be a lot more earnest about what is happening in our lives, in our identity as Christians. Stop pretending like it's all okay if it's not. If it is okay, you tell me. Tell me. If it's not okay, let's help. Let us help to disciple you and grow your faith. Let us help you to form your identity in Christ and not just what people think a Christian should be like, but what the Bible actually says, right? So you, you think about that. You come to me. <laughs> you come to me one way or the other. Let me know how you're doing. All right, enough. Enough, Pastor Ray. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I, I do thank you that even if all the world around us should fall apart, even if everything we knew was wrong or life was turned upside down, your word is true. And when we read it, we are reading things that have been etched into eternity forever and ever that must come to pass, not just will, but must come to pass. And that you have told us the end from the beginning. We here are privileged to know that. We need to be changed by that. It, it needs to change how we live right here and right now. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit's power, you would draw us. Draw us to yourself. Humble us. Help us to confess those things in our lives that are keeping us from really fulfilling our identity in you. Lord, and, and grow us. And grow this church in its maturity and it's love for each other, and it's love for you. Thank you, Lord, for being so good. There's a testimony of your faithfulness here. We have seen lives change. We have seen marriages transform. We have seen families grow and flourish. I pray, Lord, that you continue to be faithful until Christ himself returns. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness towards marriage. I don't want to leave that out. You have brought me to a better place than I could have ever imagined for myself. Help me to be faithful. Help us all to be faithful. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.